So, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Do you agree? Tens. Great or powerful men are almost always corrupt or bad. What do y'all think of that? What's, what's, what do you think I'm pulling out there? I got it. I got it. What do you think I'm... Why would I start off a conversation about government this way? What do you think I'm doing there? I'm going to sit down. Huh? Yeah. So that's the other side of it. But but what about this issue of, of power? I mean, we're we're, we're t- we tend to be a little bit afraid of power, aren't we? And we also hear stories of how our power is abusive. So the question is: Is power and an kind of a is there something inherently evil about power? And that's what we tend to think. And we're very democratic, very authoritarian you know america was a revolution against this sort of power and so yeah i think we have when we when we come into a conversation about church discipline or church government we do have to be aware that most people see this as something that's uh they they view a conversation about this as suspicious they they come in it with a suspicion what well why were they talking about this and so this gets to the next part you know what, you know, do you see when we talk, you know, we, we think about Christ as prophet and everyone wants to talk about, you know, what it is we believe, doctrines, which is an expression of Christ's prophecy, right? Prophecyhood. Everybody's comfortable talking about worship and, and, and sacraments, but then you get to government. Again, what, what, why do you think people associate government with, do you think they associate with good news? Is this something like, yeah, we need to talk about this. This is really good news. Is it good news? And how would you argue if, if you think it is good news? Is it good that we have church government? How would you argue for that from a theological perspective? What, is, what would we be missing if we did not have government that's related to the gospel, essential to the gospel? Well, everybody would be doing their own thing and yeah. their own guidelines, and you can get very unfocused yep. without having some direction. Okay, there's a very practical sort of comment about it. What about theologically? What, what, what would be missing theologically? Christologically maybe. What would, we, what would we be do we want the fullness of Christ? What would we be absent in Christ if we didn't have government? The king piece? Yeah. Where's Christ the king? Where does Christ mediate his kingship without we, we've already made the case. Remember the whole idea of a church is an essential of the gospel. What we're saying is why is it essential? Because apart from the church that's been built upon the foundation of the apostles with Christ at the cornerstone. Apart from the church, there's no mediatorial presence of Christ. That's a key word, mediatorial presence of Christ. A presence that's been carefully designed, carefully orchestrated, regulated, you know, controlled, etc. So from the Word of God. So we want Christ as our prophet. We want Christ as our priest. Don't we want him as our king? And what does a king do? A good king. Rules and why is that good news that he rules, or is that for him that he rules? Because good good we could say things like the word protect, provide. See, there's a lot of good things that comes from a benevolent king. So that gets to the first one. 
First, we have to ask the question, do we believe in the concept of power, and that can be a good thing? Can you give me an example of where power tends not to corrupt? And absolute power tends not to corrupt, if you mean by absolute, I guess, higher level. Can you think of an illustration? We'd say, wow, well, that's just not true. That's just not true. Can you? Is power necessarily corrupt? Is that really a, a legitimate bias? It's the, it's the use of power that is often corrupt. It can yeah. be. Well, all, you say the word often. Is it often? <laughs> but I guess in modern times, I, I think less so than in past. But in, in past times, I think it's a pretty honest thing. Hmm. In the monarchies and things like that, mm-hmm. pretty much. <laughs> what would be the alternative to, to, to power? Authorized, yes, anarchy, chaos. You know, studies have been done that people are be- are more uh, that people flourish more under a malevolent dictator than without any dictator. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could argue, and I hate to say this because I I really hate to say this one, but were the people in in Iraq better or worse off with Saddam Hussein? Now, you could argue. Well, it depends on which people, <laughs> but but. Yeah, and, and the Sunnis. Well, he was a Sunni, right? So the Shias, I guess. But, so that's not a good example, actually. <laughs> but you, you see the point. But I was, I'm thinking parent. Really. I mean, are, are, are most parents, and they do have pretty absolute power, <laughs> if you come right down to it. They have a huge amount of power growing up. Now, would, what do you think? Are most parents corrupt? I'd say 99, 95% of parents are probably incredibly Loving and, and caring and would do nothing but care for their kids, and yet they have power. Well, they could be very misguided, too. I mean, they can, but, but, but even then, even if they're misguided, that doesn't mean they're corrupt. Certainly parents can be wrong, but by and large, I would argue that the institution of parenthood is an incredible gift. I would argue that the institution of King, I mean, if you think about the, I mean, really, as a historian, I think it would be hard to argue that most kings were corrupt. There's always exceptions. There's always some bad apples. But by and large, I think you have, in other words, I'm trying to just at least poke some holes in this sort of populist notion that power is corruptive. There's many, many instances where it's not corruptive. In fact, to have power, to have a kind of shepherding, I mean, you think about you know, the word patriarchal. But by and large, patriarchs were very protective and very loyal to their subjects, to their family, or whatever you want to call them. So we, we just at least got to, I just want to raise the question before, we, as we talk about this idea of church government, my first point is to say, can we even conceptualize the idea of a government and not be afraid of it? Certainly it's something to respect. Something, something to, it certainly can be corrosive, and there needs to be checks and balances. But, okay, it could be good, too. And, two, and what would it do? It would protect, it would care for, provide, save, you know, all sorts of things. Um, back to the theological question number two, if you're going to make the case that that total Christ, to have the fullness of Christ in our life, Ephesians 1, is to have the mediatorial body of Christ. And if you're going to argue that Christ is 
institutionally and vocationally a prophet and a priest and a king, then you're expecting the church as part of its good news of mediating the salvation of Christ to us would need to have a doctrine of Christ's kingship mediated in our life. And that's all we're talking about here. How is it that Jesus functions as our king in a mediatorial way? In a way that was carefully instituted by God. So, this word discipline now. Let's deal with that problem. What what comes to your mind when you say discipline? What's the first word? Give me a synonym. Discipline equals? Trouble. I, I didn't hear what? Trouble. Spanking. Spanking. I'm asking a word. Come on, give me a synonym. Don't tell me what it does. Or what. What's a synonym? Punishment. Punishment. Thank you. That's my problem. What does the gospel say? What does we? What does the gospel teach? That we are no longer in fear of punishment. God took Christ took the punishment. He was punished. So punishment has a very uh, can have a very uh, um, what's the word legal uh, judgment. And others, I think of punishment is is. I mean, you could use, even punishment could be used in two words. So, so the point we're getting at, is there a kind of discipline that we would view as really gracious? What would that kind of discipline be? Well, it's, it, the kind of thing we're talking about, um, you could use the athletic analogy. Yeah, good. You know, discipline in sports, that's the whole training. Yes, the training, good. Raising somebody up to their highest potential. Except- yes, and that's exactly the way it's kind of used in Hebrews 12 training in righteousness, etc. Um, so discipline can be a training. It can be a, a remedial sort of event. It can be some apparent disciplines a child. And what we mean by that is not rejects them and condemns them to everlasting hell. What we mean is something that is to deter and to help a person reclaim a person to, to a good life, to try to bring them back to where they will flourish. But that's an act of love. It is an act of love, tough love. And so we know, we have passages we'll see that God is our Father who disciplines those whom He loves. Hebrews twelve. Um, so why might church discipline be important? I think we've kind of covered it. Anything else? We need church discipline in order to grow. If we're going to grow in understanding in our relationship with God, if we're going astray, we need to be pulled back on track. Yeah. Good. So welcome. Appreciate you guys showing up. A third of us are here, or four, or a little more now, I guess. I don't know, but I'm glad you're here. And uh, hopefully you're ready now to talk about this doctrine that is part of our salvation. That God, the way I like to think of it is, isn't it amazing that God so cares for us that he took the time to establish a parental, shepherding, caregiving, governing community to protect us, to provide for us, to bring order into our community's life. And, and it, it is an amazing thing um, that God did not leave us here without shepherds. He cared for us enough to do that. Um, just to add, we yeah. have another half dozen folks online as well, actually. Oh, great. Hey, hey, half dozen folks. Good to have you with us. Well, why don't we begin in prayer? And uh, who would like to pray for us? Anybody, Mom? Okay, good. All right. Praise you for your power, which is not corrupted at all. Mm-hmm. Amazingly, um, for our benefit, and that we can. Try-
trust you to rule um, and to discipline us uh, as a grace and to grow us in relationship with you. I pray, I pray that you'll bless our time together. Mm -hmm. Both those tuning in through the web and, and those that are here in person. And uh, just bless our conversation, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. I want to talk about two passages of Scripture, and then we'll, we'll go through the rest of this. But if, someone, if we could turn to 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5. If you have your Bibles, please do that. And when we do, if someone would mind reading 1 through 5, 1 Peter 5. Somebody got it? First Peter 5? Yep. <clears throat> so I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in charge, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So one of the things that, that really strikes you at the very beginning is, how does it begin? How does this passage begin? The very first thing it says. To the elders. It didn't say to. What does it say? Oh, mine does. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder. Okay, he, the word appeal. Mine goes, so I exhort. But there's a appeal. There is an exhortation. There is a command. I mean, right off, we have this institution that's not optional. I mean, just notice just how it starts. This isn't, I don't hear this, hey, if you feel like it, or, you know, if, if you would, please. There is a clear command from the Word of God, assuming that there are some there's, there are those who are in place, who have been instituted of God to be in place, that this command would even make this command would be nonsensical, wouldn't it? Except that there are evidently those who God has appointed in the body of Christ to do what He is here exhorting them to do. So there's a little bit of a a positive institution language here. There's a positive institution. There's something here that says, okay, we're going to look at some passages in a minute about that. But now tell me what you notice here about how these people are to govern. First of all, how is this governing described? These fellow elders. How are they to, what, how is this uh, governing described? What's the metaphor that's used here? So now that, how does that make you feel about government? Already, it's starting to think about some of the, the, the biases and the perceptions that we have of governors. Now, what, what does that metaphor do for you? What, what, what are you envisioning in your head if you think of a governor as a shepherd? What comes to your mind? With someone who watches, cares about the flock. Cares about them. Good. Who watches over them, protects them, feeds them, cares for them. So away the bad people. Yeah, exactly. So automatically you begin to get this picture that government is an incredibly wonderful thing. I mean, to have a shepherd who watches over us, 
And, of course, Christ being, as we'll see here, the ultimate shepherd. So how does Peter describe church government as doing? He's uh, he's shepherding. Notice all the don'ts or nots. Did you notice? What are the, what are, how is this government, how does this shepherd shepherd? Notice the things that you're, that they are not exhorted not to do. And think about how that would again begin to restore in us a confidence in church government. What, what are the knots? Not under compulsion. So what, what would it be for someone to do it under compulsion? You're forced to do it. Forced to do it. Resentful. So you would never want someone to resent shepherding you. Well, why? Because that would not do well for us. A, a resentful shepherd would be someone who uh, would probably take that resentment out on you <laughs> at some point. What else? Not out of out of compulsion. It's a voluntary act. You have to you know, be called to it. What else? Needy for money. Okay, not for sordid gain. Not for personal gain. Money. Well, that's that's significant. Yeah. Why well, I think every pastor should take a vow of poverty, and by that I don't mean that they're poor necessarily, but that they can't do it for money. It can't be like another career. That you really can't do it for money. If you do, and that should not be an issue that drives you in the course of your ministry as to where you minister even. Doesn't that say something too, as we were talking on Sunday about this prosperity ministry? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. My husband always says, oh, I'm glad your church isn't like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good to know. <laughs> so not for sordid gain. Anything else? Not for lording it over. There you go. Now what is he talking about there? Thinking you're better than they are. Thinking you're better, maybe okay. Purpose of having power. First was having power. I mean, there's a sense in which a lord has the power to legislate. One of the things that we vow when we when we take vows as elders in this church is that we do not have the power. Our power is not legislative, but it's only declarative, which means that that there is a lord who has laws, and we ain't it. <laughs> All we can do is declare and execute the laws that our Lord has given us, which is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. So good. There's not an absolute authority. That's the Lord issue. Back to that absolute authority issue. Anything else? To be an example. Okay. And then the positives, yeah. Not, each one of these has a corresponding positive, but proving to be an example, i.e. That, that there is a hypocrisy in shepherding when... You require of others what you yourself are not, you know, called to do. It's called leading from the front in the modern vernacular. That if you're going to ask someone, you know, if you're a soldier and you're going to ask someone to go out and fight, you're going to go. You're going to go out in front of them. If you're the if you're the officer, you're supposed to lead the front. You don't you don't stand in the back. You go to the front. If you're going to ask someone to sacrifice financially, sacrifice time, sacrifice whatever, the elder should lead from the front. Should be an example of what you're calling people to do. Not, uh, well, you do that because you're the the sub the little people, and I don't have to do that because I'm the big people. Because that's the opposite. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, this is getting tough. I mean, the more I'm reading this, I'm going, oh boy, I don't think I like this from an elder point of view, at least. <laughs> so it begins to change your view of what's going on here, doesn't it? Um, eagerly, not domineering over those in their charge. Prudent be examples, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, is this good news? Yeah. If if you were, to, would you say now, 
gosh, if this is the way church government would be, would you want it in your life? This kind of person, this kind of sh- influence? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this sounds like good news to me. I'd like, yeah, bring it on. I'd like that kind of person in my life. Yeah. You know? Definitely. So that brings us to Hebrews 12, 13. Let's turn to that. And um, let's read uh, verse 7 through 17. This is an amazing passage that I wish that we had more time to talk about, but um, it's just amazing, really. But let's pick it up at verse 7. And someone read that, please. 7 through 17. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Am I on 13? Keep going, yeah. I'm on the wrong one. No, you're not. Verse 15. Oh, okay. Um, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, this is a really interesting passage. Um, Notice carefully how verse 7 and 17, the beginning and the end, are both directed to the recipients of church government, even as to begin and end a unified argument. So, So the point I want you to make is that there is a single argument here, and all that stuff in the middle is meant to support it, which is interesting. So how does it, what does the 7 and 17 tell you? Verse 7 and 17 pretty much says the same thing. What is it? Submit to the leaders and look to them, for example. Yeah, so the first point, yeah, remember your leaders, that is, observe them. Um, Those who spoke the word of God to you, the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith. So... Yeah, we're, we're to respect and appreciate and imitate, etc. And then back at the very bottom, obey your leaders and submit to them. And notice why. Why, why do we do that? Because they are watching over us. Yeah. In obedience to Christ. And then notice first the second part there. Let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would no, be of no advantage to you. Wow, what's, what's going on with that? I mean, there's an idea, there's a concept here that those who are being led can have a direct influence on the quality of leadership that leads them. And why? What what are they saying here? Think about it. Just enjoy an encouragement so that you want. Yes. And if you don't want to, what would you, what would that do to your leadership? 
If, if, if you've made it, the, the gist of it is we are supposed to make it easy for leaders to be our leaders. If, they wanna, if, if they're, if they're going to be doing the work that they're called to do, then we, we benefit ourselves by making that easy for them to do it. Not resisting it, but actually encouraging it and, and eagerly desiring it and praying for them, etc. Now, what is the stuff in the between? Now, this is kind of a hard question, honestly. Look carefully at what's going on there in between. What's, what's being discussed there? In between 7 and 17. Do you see what's going on? I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, between 8 and... Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I'm going, whoa, whoa, what's going on with that? Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. So what's he talking about? What is leadership supposed to do? Protect you from what? Going astray. Going astray, going into these, these false teachings, things that can bring what? Destruction to us. And then he starts talking about what? The strange, you know, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Now, sometimes we read these passages and we think in emotional ways. But what is he talking about? He's talking about the doctrine of grace. He's talking about the teachings of grace. The assumption here is that this is a gospel-centered leader. A leader whose task it will be to die, to direct you to the grace of the gospel. And so it's really interesting that he's saying, no, no, follow your leaders, listen to your leaders, obey your leaders, do this eagerly and, and that it might be a joy to them. Why? Because if you don't, it's going to be harmful to your soul. And that all assumes a kind of leadership that is here being described in these middle verses that directs you to the gospel of Jesus Christ, not a leadership that directs you to legalism and moralism and Phariseeism. Everything that's described here is like the antithesis of everything we would think of as bad leadership. To give you an illustration, you know, um, you know, one of the things that's been interesting over the years is try to encourage people that if they are struggling with some sin, to come and, and confess that sin to, to your pastor or your elder. And, and, to, and why would you do that? Well, if you're... If your concept of leadership is not a gospel-centered leadership, then it's, then it's going to be this sort of, what, experience? It's going to be a, an experience that sort of brings you into this kind of a punishment that doesn't really have you at heart, but has the purity of the institution at heart or something like that. Condemnation. Condemnation. Mora, moralism. Judgmentalism. But if you were to be brought to a leader who is defined in his leadership by the doctrines that are being described in verses 8 through 16, bringing you to the, what, the sacrificial priesthood of Christ. It goes into this whole idea of the atonement of Christ. The grace that's, that's revealed through Christ's atonement for our sins, taking away the fear of judgment and condemnation. So this is crucial. I have no doubt that one reason a lot of people are scared to death of leadership in the church is because we lost the gospel in that leadership. If, if you were to come to a pastor or elder, I hope in this church, if in fact we are gospel centered, what would we be directing you to? You come and say, man, I've screwed up bad. What's the first thing you, you would hope this person would do according to this passage right here? If they're gospel centered, what are they going to do? 
They're going to absolve you. They're going to help you experience God's absolution. The, ob- the absolution is what we're... The goal of a gospel-centered leader is absolution. Mm-hmm. It's, it's doing what we must do to enable you to experience the grace of the gospel again. That's what the purpose of, of gospel-centered leadership should be about. See, the, the problem with, with church leadership has never been the institution of leadership. And it's certainly not the scripture, what kind of leadership. I mean, we just read First Peter, and wow, I'd take that any day. Now we're reading Hebrews, it's telling you submit to your leaders. And what would that mean in the context of verse 8? I mean, really look at verse 8 through seven, 16. It's incredible. It would mean that you're going to submit to this man when this man puts his hand upon you and say you're absolved of your sins. You're forgiven. Now, now live in that reality. Live in that reality. Now, sure, there's, there would be structures that might be put in place to try to help you not to sin in order to, to protect you from bringing harm to yourself. Because sin. Remember, why God hates sins? Because sin is is toxic. Sin is negative. It's not going to bring flourishing in your life. It was interesting. I was texting with my son today, and he was talking about um, this thing at Yale, this student, you know, the, the, the uh, I mean, the context was just talking about this student, the, the uh, basketball player that's been kicked off the team and all that, and it's kind of hitting the national news. And he said, hey, do you know about this? And I did know a little bit about it, and I'm just trying to tell him what the context is. But anyway, it, it, but in the context of that, he just made this little comment, which was interesting. I, I could read it, but the gist of it was um, he's married now, and he was saying, um, I, you know, he's saying, well, why do you think that is? And I kind of made the comment that, well, what you kind of what would you expect? Well, in other words, he was asking why has Yale got this issue going on, and I just said, well, what do you expect? I mean, we've got a we've got people whose hormones are the most active part in their life, and with all this sex week stuff and this this new modern way of sexuality that puts kids in the same dorm using the same, you know, bathrooms. And, and you look at that kind of world and I'm putting the most, the most um, vulnerable human beings on the face of the earth, men and women in their prime, hormonally going crazy. And it's like, what would you expect to happen here? You know, this is like crazy. This is nonsense what we're doing. So I kind of make this little comment on text. He says, and he goes back and says, yeah. He says, you know, I don't know hardly anyone that I went to college with that's not struggling in their marriage in this area. In other words, that, that sex has become a, the, 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 you know, there was promiscuity in college, and those who were promiscuous are suffering consequences now in their lives. And he was talking about how it's really messing up some of the lives of his friends. And um, it's just, that's just to illustrate that sin, the reason God hates sin, yes, he, he hates it because it, it, it uh, destroys something that was supposed to be beautiful. Most sin is a, is a misuse of something ordinarily good, whether it's some creation or something. But the, but the other reason is because it, it hurts us. It, 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 it destroys us. It, it, it diminishes our humanity. And so if we believe all that, if Hebrews is right, then a gospel-centered di- uh, discipline, if you will, or shepherding, would come and the first task would be to, to direct you to the grace of the gospel and then motivated out of forgiveness and thanksgiving and trust now that this God actually loves me and cares for me. How, how do I know that? Because of the gospel that I'm experiencing now. That then motivates me to want to obey him. Not out of fear in the sense of, 
I got to do this or I'll get punished, but out of a sense of I'd be stupid not to because my benevolent shepherd cares for me and he's telling me there's a wolf over there and so don't go eat over there. And so I'm going to trust my shepherd to try to keep me out of trouble as I become a shepherd one day to help others become out of trouble. And it's a passing down. You see, that's, am I, am I communicating, any questions about what, I'm trying to create a total different, it's like an upside down view of spiritual, of, of church leadership that I think we typically hear. But it starts with, I think Hebrews 7, it needs to really be studied a lot carefuller. And, you, if you, and this is where you look at the passage that's carefully bookmarked, verse 7, verse 17, command, command, obey your leaders basically, in between is the rationale for why you obey your leaders, which is because these leaders are going to lead you to the gospel. The very atoning sacrifice of Christ. So take advantage of it. Come into a pastor's office and say, I need to confess some sins. I need, to, I need, I need some help here. And I, I think I could guarantee you in this church, you're going, to be, you're going to be brought to the gospel before you're brought to anything else. Where you can be led to experience, again, by grace through faith alone, the forgiveness of Christ in your life. And then from that forgiveness, let's talk about how we can help you with this problem as a brother and sister in Christ. That's missing in a lot of churches. Yeah. Well, it could be, but it's just horrible if it is. it is. And you can see why the sheep are scared of their shepherds because it's not benevolent. It's not that kind of gentle, loving, bring you to the gospel. Now pray. This is all, I mean, already I'm sitting here going, oh, man, can we just stop right now and pray? Because, I mean, there's a lot of challenges to this kind of leadership. And we're going to get into that next. Any questions? Any thoughts? So notice then chapter 30, verse 1 and 2. Can you all read that? Is it big enough for you to read it? Here's the way our confession introduces the concept of government, which I think summarizes a lot of what we've been reading. Could anybody read that up there? Who has eyes to see? Not that. A little bigger. Jesus Christ, you see that? Who wants to read it? Jesus Christ, upon whose shoulders the government rests, having all power given him in heaven and on earth by the Father, uh, head over all things of the to the church. To the church, your head's not wire. Oh, is it? <laughs> which is which is his body, uh, the fullness of him that filleth all in life. He being. Ascended up for, up for above all heavens. Far above all heavens. For he might. Here, you want to pick it up here. It's hard for you to read it, isn't it? That he might fill all things, received gifts for his church, and gave all offices necessary for the edification of the church and the perfecting of its saints. He's literally quoting these passages that you have listed here. Ephesians 4, Ephesians 1. This is coming out of our confession. And therefore it belongs to his majesty from his throne of glory to rule and teach the church through his word and spirit by the ministry of men, thus immediately, that's a key word, I underlined it there, exercising his own authority and enforcing his own laws into the edification and establishment of the kingdom. Of course, the key word there is the word edification. It's to build up, not tear down. So here we have in these earlier passages what we call divine institution or appointment of the idea that this is an institution that's not man-made, but it's actually created by God in order to mediate Christ in our life. Of course, one of the classic passages is Matthew 16, 18 through 19, 
um, especially compared to 18 verse 17. So I want to turn to that too. I'm getting you to some scripture here. But if you have your Bible, again, turn to Matthew chapter 16. This is one of the classic passages that are, that are utilized for what we call Juro Diveno or by divine institution government. 16, we're going to pick up at verse 18. So you know the context. Peter's just confessed Jesus to be the Christ. And, um, and, uh, and then, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed as to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, that is his confession, upon the doctrine that Christ is the Messiah, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, this is a very important passage because what you see is that there is a link, there is a correlation between Christ's rule, where? From where? Heaven. heaven on earth. Now, I don't know how else you, you, you interpret that, but on earth means visible, tangible, bodily, <laughs> flesh, whatever. This isn't some abstract concept here. There's a, there's a correlation between binding and loosing on, in heaven as, on earth as it is in heaven. And if you look at that language, turn to chapter 18. Just flip on down a little bit. What's he talking about? Well, verse 18, let's look at verse uh, 17 and following. And this is a classic concept that has been very misunderstood. You're going to see that in a minute. So we're beginning verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two other along with you that every charge may be established. Notice that word charge, indictment. There's a kind of, you sin, right? You're wrong. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by witnesses. He's really, what's he starting to describe here? A court. By the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, what is the church? Is the church defined in this governing judicial context, every member? Or is it defined the church acting corporately by virtue of its officers, judges, those who've been appointed to be judges, those who've been appointed to be elders or shepherds or whatever you want to call them, under shepherds? So you see what's going on? So, and then he says, and if he refuses to listen to even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector, i.e. let him be excommunicated. He's no longer part of the church. Um, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind, hey, we heard this before? He's, he's going back to Matthew 16. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, where two or three are gathered in my name, they are among them. Now, this is a classic passage. It's often misunderstood. This is talking about church government. This is talking about quorum. This is a quorum. In the ancient days, this would be a quorum. Two or three. And so uh, the idea here is, so when if you hear somebody, you know, well, you know, wherever two or more God's with us, well, th- th- there's some truth to the fact that God's with Christians when they meet together. So, but this would be a horrible passage to say that about. This passage is talking about a church court, church acting qua church in a governmental way, binding and loosing, which means bringing people under the authority of Christ 
Now, of course, we know what that authority should bring them to, the authority of Christ unto their salvation. Let's don't lose the gospel here. And if they have rejected that salvation, then you, you, the highest censure you can give is a censure of declaring them that we declare that you are outside of the government of Christ. We put you outside of that protective care. This is the idea of 1 Corinthians uh, um, what is it, 15, where it says, and, let him, and then this idea of let him be as a tax, that's code word for let him be outside the church. Counted as a sinner. Now, so these are lined with things that have been horribly misabused, and you can see what they're saying. Um, so let's look back at this Matthew 18, and this, I won't go through the details of this, but you can. I give you a little bit of, of context for this word keys. That's a very important phrase there, this idea that they've been given the keys of heaven and earth. What does that mean, to give the keys? Well, I do a little word study for you here uh, and talk about it. The, this concept of keys is derived from the Old Testament. You see them in First Chronicles 9, Nehemiah, etc. They were the gatekeepers. They were basically gatekeepers of the temple of God. Those who are the gatekeepers do what? They open and shut the kingdom of God to or the temple of God, to, to the world. They protect the kingdom of God against unlawful intrusion. They protect those in the temple from external uh, abuse, etc. Um, I give you the language of binding and loosing here. You can all look at it. And I give you instances where that language is relating to bring someone under a sentence. Bind is to put them under a sentence, a censure of some sort. Loose is to set them free from that sentence or absolve. So you could you literally say church censures, and in, in, in our tradition based on Scripture, we have different levels of censures. One is just to correct, just the censure of, uh, of correction, rebuke, if you will. It's a formal, we therefore you know, give you the censure of, what's the word, um, whatever it is, correction basically. And then there's a suspension from the table, and then there's excommunication. And the intent of that is to bind and loose. And it goes in a sequence. You don't just start with throwing them out the door. It's a process that might last years. As long as you see movement going, as long as there's a sense of we're making progress with this person, then we stick with that. This isn't a rush to make this nice sentence. And, but you don't see anything here in the way I've interpreted the church to mean that we parade them in front of the church. It's done in a very, you know, the, the, the rule usually, and this is getting way beyond what we need to do here, but the rule is that, that you make it as public as the sin is public. In other words, you want, to encourage, you want the church to know that, that there is a rule that's being affected so as to deter sin and also to give people a sense of not everybody taking it into their own hands. I mean, this is one of the things that's really important. There was a situation a while back where someone had gotten pregnant outside of wedlock and... Um, and we knew that that was going to happen, so it was going to become a, a, a public situation. So we had a congregational meeting, a closed meeting, and we pronounced that, listen, um, you know, this person has come, and, and it's, you know, the session has met with this person and has, has done what it needed to do in terms of drawing, you know, doing what it needed to do to reclaim this person to Christ and bring her back under the grace of the gospel. And I said that literally so that I said, so therefore, guys, when she starts showing... Not everybody's going to run around here trying to go over there and rebuke her. Not everybody's going to be trying to go over there and say, it was just the opposite of what you'd think. The tent was, you know, you need to be the, you know, don't worry, the parents are around, okay? It's not for you to be the parent here. You're not the elder. It's for you to go run up to your sister and go, 
man, how was it? Did did they hurt you? You know, no, I don't mean that. But you know, it's meant to be a, a real sense of of love. And and man, we're we're with you. We're supported. We're part of the family. And it really had that effect. I could tell you who this is, and this person wouldn't mind, but I'm not going to do it. But if you were to go to this person and ask this person about that experience, I can guarantee you they would say to you, it was the most gracious experience I've ever had in my life. They would say it was just a, a powerful moment where I experienced the grace and the love of Christ in the way this, this church. But see, that's gospel. That's the way the gospel does this kind of stuff. It was not a scarlet letter moment, I'll assure you. Uh, but even then, it was only to do it. We wouldn't have even brought it up, if, 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 except that she was pregnant. And therefore, <laughs> we had to deal with this so everybody doesn't walk around with all the going on. So, so this is the spirit of this. I can't say it enough. Um, let's see here. So what's the purpose of church discipline? There's, I want you to jump down to, uh, if you're looking at this, but I'm showing it to you here, but if you have it, you can look. Jump down to this addendum, church discipline further defined and explained, if you're looking at that. It's, it's an addendum there. And here, here's just a, just a real brief summary of church discipline. Those of you who've had shepherding training have seen this handout before. So first of all, we make the point that, that this, this discipline that we're talking about, or shepherding, is a direct institution of, of, by Christ. He, he st- established it. This isn't a humanly in, you know, made-up event. And here we have this definition of the keys, and I quote the Heidelberg Catechism, number 83, the preaching of the Holy Gospel and church discipline by which two things, the kingdom of heaven is open to believers and shut against unbelievers. So notice the relationship between word and government. That it's, that the two are always having to be together here. And then it goes on after, you know, you look at Matthew 18, which we just read. How is the kingdom of heaven shut and opened by church discipline? In this way, that according to the command of Christ, if and under the Christian name show themselves unsound either in doctrine or life, and after repeated brotherly admonition refuse to turn from their errors or evil ways, they are complained of to the church or to its proper officers, and if they neglect to hear them also are by them excluded from the holy sacraments and the Christian communion and by God himself from the kingdom of Christ, and if they promise and show real amendment, they are again received as members of Christ and his church. He's basically walking you through Matthew 18 right there. That you'd take them first personally, then you know double. So he's just. This is a statement. It's kind of old English, so it's hard to understand. But what's very interesting about this is this idea of shutting and opening, or binding and loosing this person in the kingdom of God. Now, what do we mean by that? Now, this is another really misunderstood thing. Whatever. What did I say earlier about the nature of church authority or power? We said it was declarative only. So what we're not saying, and I'll show this in a minute, is we're not saying that what the church does affects their relationship to the kingdom of God eternally. It's not like, it's not like Jesus is saying, whatever you do, do thou, I'll back you up on it. <laughs> if that, you know, what, you know, on earth is it in heaven? It's not, okay, guys, whatever you say is going to affect their eternal destiny. No, what we're doing is we're declaring a judgment on what we believe Christ is doing based upon his scripture. So it's not meant to be a, some people will say if, if the church excommutes someone, that therefore they are going to hell. Well, no, they're going to hell, the church judges, and therefore it declares it. 
as a warning so that they can still have time to repent. Let me say that again. You could have a concept that says the church excommunicates somebody. And again, this is the, the, the this is after again, a long process, so don't don't think of excommunication as something that happens here. You know, it, it, there's a lot that goes on before you get there. And if there's and as long as this person's hanging around still working with the they'll never get excommunicated. <laughs> it's only really the excommunication person said, screw you, I'm out of here. And then after probably years of trying to get him back, we say, look, this guy ain't coming back, and we need to. We don't love this person if we don't explain to them what the implication of that is. That if they've rejected Christ and his word and his church, then he's going to hell. Therefore, the most loving thing to do is to warn him that he's going to hell. That's called excommunication. So let me say it again. Excommunication is not the church throwing someone out of the church and then Christ... That affects Christ in a way that Christ, therefore, throws them out of heaven. It's not binding on earth as it is in heaven, starting from earth. It's a judgment based on Scripture applied to a person's life or faith that, you know, Billy Bob, it's a statement that says, we're giving you the, the strongest warning we know how to give you, that unless you repent and turn to Christ, you're going to go to hell. And there's an old Latin saying, to be warned is to be half saved. It's, it's, it, the intent is to reclaim this person. It's never to condemn them to hell. It's to warn them. So that's all excommunication is. And we would also hold in this tradition that the church can be wrong, that it's not an infallible church. We do the best you can. And a, and a person could say, I'll take my risk. I'll take my chances, I guess, and say, I think you guys are wrong. Now, we have an appellate system for that, and I won't get into all the minutiae here. I'm just trying to create the concept that there is a shepherding, a shepherding that is meant to be gospel-centered. And in that gospel-centeredness, like any other good parent, there can be forms of warnings that can escalate trying to reclaim you. And that's all church government is. And whatever you had a perception of it, that's all it is. It's like a father who says, man, if you just keep walking out in that street, you're going to get killed one day. You know, and that's the idea of church government. And so... So what I do here next, and just to show you this little handout, is I show I give you some scriptures that show you the practice of it. In other words, where do you see this in scripture? Well, here it is. You'll see examples in scripture of the church disciplining. You see, there's, you know, I mean, it didn't, I mean, you know, a lot of people say, oh, well, I don't really believe in that stuff because the scripture really doesn't talk about that. Really? There's probably more teachings about this than just about anything in the scripture. Not anything. But but in terms of community life, it is. So you have 1 Timothy 5, 20. You have 2 Timothy 2, 24, 26. Jude 23, Titus 3, 2 Timothy 6. Directions given in Scripture of the manner of its reception. We've read some of those already. What are the goals of discipline? One is the glory of God. We do it so God isn't mocked. You know, that God isn't like, you know, viewed as, you know, whatever, dumb or whatever. For the purity of the church, to pr- protect the church from 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 sin that can become like gangrene, and most importantly, maybe, to reclaim the wayward. It's to bring them home. It's never to, to admit, it, the intent of discipline is never to, to really, to, you know, to keep them away from Christ. It's the opposite. It's trying to find a way to bring them back to Christ in a way that would be for them to flourish. We've talked about the stages of discipline. I like the word stages versus steps. You know, a lot of times people think of discipline as only like 
the the final stuff, the punitive or whatever you want to, you know. But if you if you think about it or remedial, it's it starts with positive. It's a positive. You know, you're being disciplined right now. You do know that right now. You are right now being disciplined by being taught. Whenever you're preached at, you're being disciplined. In other words, a parent disciplines a part of the discipline of a parent is what to instruct their children. And so Christ instructs his children. Remember, Christ is our shepherd, not Preston or Kevin or somebody like that. Christ is a shepherd. We're here to mediate that shepherding by hopefully being faithful to his shepherding laws and, and concerns and doctrines, etc. And through that, you are being disciplined. And it's called the positive dimension, teaching to observe. And this is right out of Scripture, by the way, where he's talking about the Word of God that's profitable for teaching to observe all that Christ commanded. The prevenient dimension is watching over people. That's what happens when our session calls you up on a, on, and say, I'm praying for you this week. Um, and they do a bit of a investigating. How are you doing? Something going on? The quicker we can catch this stuff, the quicker you can share. You know, actually, I'm struggling with this. The quicker, the better it's going to be for you in terms of being helped and loved in the gospel to be able to get the strength to un- uh, overcome that issue. So we call that the prevenient dimension, watching over souls, prevent their going astray. And then the remedial. And then the remedial has these three stages. Private stage, go to them in person, private. Don't bring anybody else into it. And I really mean that. If you see a brother or sister sinning, you, you, you want to remember there's a way that we do that. We think about it here, but in Galatians, you go and you, you correct someone, but you do so with humility, knowing full well, and watching yourself, lest you too be tempted. There's an idea that you go in the spirit of, look, man, I'm no better than you. You know, don't hear this as me being superior. I mean, I'm just as capable, you know, but by the grace of God go I, you know. And so I'm not coming to you as, as this kind of superior person. I'm a fellow sinner. You're a sinner. But I have a role with God that, that I swore to uphold, which is to watch over you and care for you. And, man, I'm, I'm worried for you. But we would do that before we go to another elder. We'd do that before you would do it as a friend, before you go to another friend. You don't first go to, you know, you know, I don't know. You know, Janet doesn't go to Lisa and say, Lisa, pray for Billy, uh, Susie Lou because she's doing this. No, she goes to Susie Lou first. You know, and then and if Susie Lou's interested and, and, and open and humble, then Janet, you would stay with Susie Lou without going to anybody as long as there's progress being made. And hopefully it never gets out of that stage. But if it does, then you might go to Lisa and say, hey, Lisa, I'm really worried for Susie Lou, you know, and I've told her I'm going to talk to you about this because maybe she, you, you with me, to, we can have a little more influence. We can help her. Would you be willing to do, go talk with her with me and let's see if we can help her through this? Yeah, I'd be happy to. And they go to that stage, and then they stay in that stage as long as they can stay in that stage, as long as there's progress being made. And then if that stage doesn't work, then you take them to the government of the church, the, the session in this case. You see, and so there's a, there's a process that we see in Matthew 18, right out of Matthew 18. That we're trying that you'd want to follow, and that's the government of the church, working itself out. Now, why is this so difficult? This this discipline. Now, put yourself in the form of the shepherd, or in your case, a friend. <coughs> no, you're not formally, of course, disciplined. I mean, why is it? Why is discipline so difficult? Well, one, it's personal. It's hard for sinners to discipline dis- sinners. I think one of the biggest problems that most of us have is what right do I have? Because I'm pretty screwed up myself. And you are, more than you think. <laughs> and I am too. 
But that's not, no, but, but see, I, I'm, you're acting as a pastor elder, you're acting in office. You're not acting in person. You're doing what you need to do, even though it's not that you're not sinning. It's not that you're perfect. You're never claiming that. But you're, you're wanting to have, you're wanting to bear the burden of others in helping them struggle through issues. So yeah, it's personal. Exegetical. The fact of the matter is, some things are really hard. There's exegetical challenges. You know, what's the biblical grounds for divorce? Man, that is tougher than you think. Pornia is the key word, and what does that mean in its original context? And does it mean just sexual? No, it probably means abandonment. It's the idea of abandonment. Of course, you can abandon through a sexual, you know, adultery, but you can also abandon in a lot of ways. What, what if, I don't know, what, what if you're threatened to kill your spouse? Well, you know what? You don't play with that. <laughs> you know, you, we, we literally had a situation not, you know, about many years ago, many years ago, and you, none of y'all would know this situation, where literally I had to call up an elder. We walked into a, into a home and took that wife out of that home because this person had a gun and was waving it around saying, you know, really dangerous things. Now, this person would say, yeah, I was a little angry, but no, I never, blah, blah. I don't care, man. <laughs> you just lost it. You just lost the right to have a life. You, you don't play like that. I mean, it just takes one second and it's over. You just don't play. Is that grounds for divorce? It's hard. I can tell you what we did, but, you know, we felt at the end of the day, and there was other circumstances that came available, and it was. You see? So, so be careful. But those are exegetically difficult things. But certainly you abandon your, your, your spouse if you, if you render them in a situation where um, their life is, is in any way threatened. You know, there's some first a priori <laughs> rights here. To live and to not fear, you know, personal destruction is one of them. And so, uh, so it's exegetical. There are many exegetical problems. Um, cultural. We live in a world that's very individualistic, volunteeristic, rise of litigation, sentimentalism. All of these things can make it very, very hard for your shepherds to be shepherds. And then finally, um, you know, so yeah, that's, that's issues there. And then finally, I'm going to stop in a minute. There is a limitation to discipline, and it's very careful, you know, um, Discipline has to be the power of the church is limited by regard to the authority of Christ as the source of it. The church has no power. The shepherds have no power beyond where Christ is by good and necessary inference or explicitly given it. So, man, I think anybody that buy a a orange car is is probably got some cuckoo guttons going on there, don't y'all think? I don't know that we should. Man, you know. You're in trouble. <laughs> I don't know about the kingdom of God for this guy. Do you? You see what I mean? No, he can look back at me right now and say, I don't care who you are. I don't see that in scripture, so forget you. And he'd be right as it. I hope he do it, humbly. <laughs> the judicial power of the church in the way of discipline is limited by the word of God as the rule of its exercise. Beyond that rule, the church has no right of discipline and no authority to enforce it. The power of the church in the way of discipline is limited by the nature of it as exclusively spiritual. This is stuff that we talk about a lot here when we do training and, and uh, officers training. But what if someone comes to the church that you've excommunicated and walks forward and, and to receive the communion? Should you give it to him? He's been excommunicated, right? So I'm sitting there. They come up. What should I do? Give him a blessing. <laughs> I'd say I'd give it to him. Yeah. I, have, I have fenced the table. I've told 
that you must be a believer by grace through faith alone and a member in good standing. In other words, you don't participate at the table because you've admitted yourself. You're admitted to it. You're, you're brought under the discipline of the Lord, which is to admit you to it. And if that person walks up the next week and takes it, eat to your own, you know, the, it's, it's, it's your, it's, you're taking your own life into your own hands here. But, but it's, all, it's never temporal. So the point is, is that the power of the church is never temporal. We can't threaten home, money. We can't, threaten, we can't bodily touch you and try to force you bodily or temporally to do anything. You know, spanking is not legit here for elders to spank or, you know, whatever. You know, get, you know, we, We're responsible for their soul. Yeah. And so I would think that unless he'd repented, that you would just give him a blessing and not give him communion. Um, well, I don't know about the blessing part, but 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 we could. I mean, yeah, that's an interesting. We don't give adults typically blessings, so I don't know if we'd do that or not. But but the uh, um, yeah, I don't know. That's a curious thing. But but the point is, we would not we would not take it away from them. I mean, if they want it, they're going to have it. If they want to reject the authority of the church, that's between them and God. You see my point. We don't have the power of the sword. We only have the power of spiritual power or moral persuasion. It's a warning. It's never physical. So no, if a, someone came in there, we're not going to get in a hand. No, yeah, no, yeah. We're not going to sit there and start grabbing the plate and tugging at each other. They're going to eat it, and I've seen it happen. Um, it is limited by nature, spiritual, exclusively spiritual. The power of the church and the way of discipline is limited by regard to the liberties and edification of the members. There again, it's it's the everything you do with discipline is meant to serve and edify and bring them, reclaim them to the gospel. It's never meant to be, you know, a demonstration of power or something like that. Well, are there any questions about this? Still love, huh? Sometimes discipline is still love. I mean, I'm thinking of something in particular. That happened many, many years. Well, all discipline is love. It, it should right, be. Right. And, and There's no such thing as unloving discipline biblically. If they've gone through this and they still haven't repented, how can you? You just try to, you pray for them. You teach them as much as they're willing to be taught. You, you follow them up. You make phone calls. You pursue them. You can do a lot of things, yeah. but you can't temporally do a thing to them. And, by, and that's very important because what is the nature of faith? Faith by its very nature cannot be compulsed. It cannot be, you, you can't force faith. It's got to be voluntary. It's a free will vent. Right. You got to want it or it's not faith at all. So, so one of the problems that the Puritans had, it's a very big problem, is they had this covenant theology. And by that, I don't mean what we mean by covenant theology in the redemptive sense. There was this idea that God had formed a covenant with Mass Bay like God had formed with Israel. So if you were in the covenant hermeneutic yesterday it, it they had a mistake mass bay did and i love the guys at mass bay a lot of godly people there but they viewed america as the new israel of god a new nation on a city on a hill hear that the city on a hill the armadillo and that this city on a hill was going to be governed by god a theocracy and therefore the temporal and spiritual came together therefore you can't own land unless you're a member in good standing of the church if you sin and excommunicate from the church, you're going to be you're going to lose your your home. You know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You can be punished with 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 you know all sorts of punishments that are temporal, put in jail, whatever. So, what what do you think the problem of a preacher would be? This is a nice little insight. If you, if I'm the pastor, 
say a Jonathan Edwards. And the people there, in order for them to provide for their family, have to be in church. What's my problem? What what am I problem? What do you think is going to be a problem for me if I'm their pastor? They got to be there. They got to come to church. What would probably what would, might that encourage? Depends how rebellious they are. Well, but but no, I mean think about it. You're you're your dad, and you want your kids to eat and have a home. Are you going to go to church? Sure. Heck yeah, you're going to go to church. I don't care what you believe. Not going to hear a word you say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You would have what's called dead orthodoxy. An orthodoxy that someone can profess but not believe. In fact, it'd be harder for them to believe because they wouldn't even know if they believe it or not for, for good reason. They wouldn't know. I mean, how would you judge in your heart? If you, I wonder if I'm believing because I really believe this or if I'm believing because if I don't, I'm screwed. And so we hear a sermon like Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And I think we're very, very critical of a sermon like But first of all, read the whole sermon. It really is an incredibly gracious sermon if you get to the end of it. Incredibly gracious. You know, this idea of the spider hanging over a fire about to be roasted and God in his graciousness pulling you know. So it's pretty graphic. But what, why are they doing this kind of stuff? You're trying to wake up dead people. People who are, they're, they're, you're trying to help them to, to come to grips with the fact of their sin that they might want the gospel. Because they're not there. They're, they're, because the potential is that they're not there because of free will. They're there because they don't want to lose their home. You see? And so there, there are these, this is the kind of, so yeah, we don't want church power to be temporal and to have any effect upon your, your, your money, your bodily anything, anything. Because we want, because that's going to set you free now to actually, to, it gives the church greater power because we have the power of the spirit now, the soul. You take, you take that temple and put it over it. You know, the government is not a very good moral instructor. <laughs> you know, because the government has temporal power to restrain evil, and it's a great institution, and we love the government, the civil authorities, but it's not good at religion. Never was. Because it's because because our hearts aren't open to them. We're afraid of the government. They control our physical life and prosperity, and the, and and we should be afraid of it. It's what Romans says that we are to be those who do harm should be afraid of it. But the church, we don't want to be afraid of it. We want to be open to hearing the ministry of the church. So this issue of temporal is very important. Our authority is only declarative and ministerial. We say, as in a servant, it's never legislative and magisterial well that's church government an introduction i know we kind of i got off on that but um just to try to get through some stuff real quickly let me just stop we have about five minutes here and there's some other things in here but but anything you just want to go back to and talk to about talk about a little bit more church government what do you think of it you like it For it to work, it requires a lot of understanding on the part of mm-hmm. not just the leaders, yeah. but also the people being That's right. Led. Good point. And that doesn't happen in a lot of places. You know, it's really funny um, that the irony is the more the church teaches on government and discipline, the, the, the everything you just said becomes true because there, because – what scares me is a church that never talks about it and itself doesn't really have a lot of doctrines related to it because you've now left it open to just any person 
you know, it, it becomes very dangerous because it's not regulated. The, the beautiful thing is the scripture, I, I mean, like I said, it really, there's really a lot of instruction in the Bible about the regulate, that all's meant to regulate, like we just saw in First Peter. There's a lot of regulation going on in that passage we read that says, no, you can't do it this way. You can't do it this way. You can't do it this way. This is a dangerous power, so be careful how you use it, in so many words. It's regulated very carefully about, I mean, you've got very explicit instructions in First Peter and First Timothy 3 and Titus and other places. You have very explicit instructions about who are qualified and who are not. What's the moral character got to be? And it goes through a whole list in First Timothy 3. Let them be a husband and wife. And those are very important things. So the irony is the scripture gives a lot of, of instruction about those who should be shepherds, shepherd elders or, or whatever. And, and the irony, you're right, but, but ironically, the temptation is because we don't want as a church to appear to love authority, we don't ever teach on it. I'm tempted not to talk on it because I know. I mean, I know I'm kind of skeptical, and it's like, well, yeah, it's... It, Sounds a little opportunistic or self-serving. If you're the pastor or you're the elder, for you to go teaching people about church authority can appear to be very self-serving you know, serving if, if you're power-hungry or something. But the fact is it's just the opposite if, in fact, you're going to the Scripture because what you're going to find is the Scripture has, like we did today, it's just got a lot of regulation on it. It, it just diminished any kind of temporal power for me. It just diminished any kind of bad motive from, from me. It just diminished any kind of, 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 of legislative power that I could make some laws coming out of my own head. I mean, think about it. Before, before we were older today, what, it, what can I do exactly? <laughs> Not a whole lot, except to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel and to clarify what his word speaks to as to way a life that would make you flourish. That's about all I can do. <laughs> that's pretty limited here. So the irony is, to, yeah, I think, I'm just going to your point there. I think it's a great point, that, that it's really sad that, that we've lost. But part of it's because we don't believe in the church anymore. We don't believe in the mediatorial body of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. If you really believe that Jesus is, your, is, is, is real and that he is mediating his presence in us through this institution we call the body of Christ, the body of Christ, I take that quite literally almost, not really, distinct but never separate kind of thing. If I really believe that statement of Ephesians, then by God, I need to sit down and ask, well, what does he do as a prophet so that I can make sure the church does it? What does he do as a priest so that I can make sure the church does it? What does he do as a king so I can make sure the church does it? And all of a sudden you start taking ecclesiology seriously because you take Christ seriously in his presence. That's a really crucial statement. One of the little cliches we, we, we use a lot in, in Mission Anabano in our training there is that ecclesiology is just Christology applied. That's all it is. Ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, is just Christology applied. The In heaven, on earth, as it is in heaven, logic. That's what we're doing. On, on earth, as it is in heaven, that's what we're doing in, in ecclesiology, in church. How is it that Christ, who is seated in the, the heavens is present by virtue of the Holy Spirit acting in, with, and through this community we call the, the Christian church. That's what we're doing. We're doing Christology. All right, any other thoughts? I can't believe I'm, I'm early here. 827, got three minutes. You got three minutes. 
know, I was thinking that well, being a church leader and teacher is you're mm-hmm. held to a higher standard in a way mm-hmm. as to what you are teaching. And the more you teach, the more you get yourself in trouble, right? <laughs> yeah. The more you can but judge also, me by. So because you always raise up Jesus hmm. and pointing people to him, you become credible. Hmm. Well, yeah, pray. I could always do it for the false reason, for, for the reason of getting me, making me more credible. See, I'm going to screw myself up before it's all over. How do you know I'm just preaching Christ because I've just learned that's, the, that's what gets people to go, Ooh, yeah. Man, I'm telling you, sin is gross. It can go on and on and on. So you know what? At the end of the day, there's nothing I can do or say. There's everything I could do wrongly. So that's why you've got to pray that it's just real. It's just real. There's got to be the Holy Spirit just doing all this because I'm telling you, I, you know, Look, when you've been, I'm just being honest. I mean, you've been, when you've been in ministry enough, you can walk in there and say all the right stuff that'll make, that you know people will say, yeah, I like that guy for that. I mean, we're not dumb. You know, I know that I can, if I just keep talking about Jesus, you're going to say, yeah, he's a good pastor. I can be a horrible pastor and talk about Jesus all the that's time. That's right. That's true. So that's where it's just got to be real. Yeah. You'll know them by their fruit. And I don't mean by that numbers that walk in the door. I mean, just right. over time, the fruit of their life and, and what's the effect of that. The fruit of the church is like. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's a really good point, which is scary. But, but I just mean that really. Pray. I mean, I really mean that because, you know, you know it is so much bigger than, than our elders and our pastors. It's so much bigger. And so, so if we really believe this, that we want Jesus to be authentically and really present in, with, and through CPC, we've got to pray for that. Every one of us pray. And that God, God I know, has the power to take me out. And he has the power to take an elder out. He has the power to take anybody out. So take them out when they need to be taken out. Doesn't mean if a pastor leaves, God took them out, by the way. <laughs> Could be he's called them somewhere else, too, so let's give him a little grace. But you see my point. Yes. Or if he dies. <laughs> I guess it's getting really sorted, isn't it? Anyway, yeah. It's, it's easier for me to comprehend um, the church and teaching and government on the church level mm-hmm. than it is for me to really you know, get that section in 31 on synods and councils. Mm-hmm. Coming from a Catholic background, yeah. that always makes me a little bit, you know. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Get hierarchical. Thank you for asking that, yeah. Well, here's a really good doctrine for you. Um, it, oh, boy, I wish I had time to really articulate this theologically, but think about it. If your notion of the church is defined by some abstract, invisible concept, then what you're going to be saying is that the most pure church, the most authentic church, is the one that's most global. And a lot of people think like that. Most glo- as in this sort of global, big, non-local, non-personal level church. Some people call it the one holy Catholic or invisible church. Because both the visible and the invisible or Catholic, by the way, and holy. But here's, we, that's not what we believe. What we're going to say is, the more local the church becomes, that is, the more flesh and blood bodily it becomes, the more, what's the word, the more concentrated is the presence of Christ. So your expression articulates that, that the more a church is defined and understood as a local entity, the more, therefore, we have the power of Christ in our life. 
To say that I belong to a church, but I'm not active in a local church, is to have very little, if any, of Christ's presence in my life. But to say, but, but, so that's the first thing I want to say. Out of that doctrine, out of that idea, Joanne, is a doctrine that we call original jurisdiction. And what that means is that the local church has the primary and, and um, executional authority of Christ, and we don't give that to the other levels of church. It starts locally. Now, out of that, the way that our tradition relates to those other bodies you described, the synods, the general assembly, is only through an appell- a review and an appellate system. So what I mean by that is the Presbytery, our, our Southern New England Presbytery, on an annual basis will review the minutes of our church, our session. They'll review that. And they're not going to engage any of it except that they would see us doing something that is unlawful according to Scripture. So notice what's happened there. In an appellate system, you don't get into the weeds. You don't get into all the policies and all the stuff that's going on here. You're, you're, you're deferring, if you will, to the local context. You're assuming that the local context has the most immediate and direct and fullest wisdom of God in how to execute the gospel in that context of that person's life. Now we think, and then, but but we also want to give then a appellate concept where, yeah, but what if the church says to Joanne that Joanne, you can't um, own a car, and you're going to say, well, church, I, I'm not sure I see that in scripture, and you you challenge the church, and the church, says, I don't care, we're your authorities, you shall not have a church, or you'll be excommunicated. You're not you're not going to have a car because you're going to be excommunicated if we were to do something stupid like that. Well, you need to have a recourse. Say, but hold it. I'm not so sure the global church agrees with this local position. In other words, I want to appeal your decision to the Presbytery. So that the Presbytery has the opportunity to look over this and see if, and then if the Presbytery rules and you still want to appeal it, I want to, pre- I want to appeal it to the world church called the General Assembly. And there's an appellate system. Now, what, why are you familiar with that? That should sound very familiar to you. Because that's the way America's set up. Original jurisdiction starts in the lo- local context and moves itself through the court system upward, not down. It's not a hierarchical system that starts up here and comes down. It's a local system that goes up. And so that's a very important concept that you're – so, yes, you're absolutely right that you're going to rightly experience more power, more presence, more authentic Christ locally than you ever could globally, but the global – is, is, is going to protect you from an abuse of local. And we see that in our government, in our civil, that's, and, and, and you know, the American system of government was patterned after Presbyterianism in the Hanover Presbytery in Virginia. That's where it came from, right out of Presbyterianism. This idea of fed- states and federal, and of course we've been in a fight about that since forever. Civil War, you know, where does this power where does the where does the sort of local root original a lot of what you hear going on in politics today is this issue of original jurisdiction who should have more power over what should local states control marriage or should federal control marriage and off we go what are those things that are doctrines that are global and what are those things that are doctrines that need to be executed locally and that's a big decision going on so i i don't know if that answered your question but yeah you're exactly right your intuitions are right because if you start biasing General Assembly to govern your life, 
in a practical way, it can become very abusive because why? What do I know about a person living in New Haven when I live in Atlanta? And so, so uh, we've had situations in Presbytery where uh, th- this is often happens between churches that are more rural-oriented and churches that are more urban-oriented. And so there may be a doctrine. You know, I can think of one, but there may be a doctrine. Let's say the issue of authority, of women authority or something. Now, how that's practiced in an urban context and how that might be practiced in a rural context could be very different. Only because what would be perceived by implication of what's happening, could be different. And so, uh, you know, or whatever it is. H- how do we treat the gay issue or whatever? And, um, and so we have to be careful that, that we give deference to the local. We, so the idea of this system is you defer to the local, except that you find by good and necessary inference that the local has violated a global truth. You see? So that's that's good at question. Think appellate system. Did anybody in the uh, in the group over there want to ask a question? None yet. We'll see if anyone chimes in. I'll report. Okay. Do they hear me? Mm-hmm. All right. Hey guys. <laughs> Any questions from you? Not. We're going to close it. There's about a 25 second delay, so they'll hear your. <laughs> well, is that right? In about 30 seconds, and maybe someone will chime in. Okay. We're we're going to stop here, but I'll give them 25 seconds since I said that. <laughs> Didn't know that, or I wouldn't have asked, maybe. <laughs> well, you've asked a couple times if anyone has yeah, questions. Yeah. So. yeah, sometimes I think they don't know I'm talking to them. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, let's, let's uh, Joanne, would you close us in prayer?